0: This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Let it shine. I think all of us could use a little bit more light today. So. No matter what you're doing, whether you're behind a computer screen or interacting with someone in your family or talking to somebody on the phone, that you would choose to be a light in the darkness today. Every single one of us can do that.
1: You just heard the unmuted Rachel Druckenmiller. Rachel has a very consistent presence on LinkedIn that I really enjoy. She shows up every day and is very positive, very life-giving, very generous, very kind. I'm so happy to have her on the show today and we discuss the unmuted life and how you can have a more unmuted experience without muting other people in the process. Ladies and gentlemen, Rachel Druckenmiller but uh it's kind of funny how we kind of connect is uh, i have your dad oh. on tomorrow which is yeah awesome. he
0: he is a um he's a fireball man you'll, you'll notice i'm sure you'll notice some synergy you'll be like oh okay apple doesn't fall far from the tree and i i see i see these two and, and why they uh you know are such fans of each other so that'll be cool to have that <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm looking forward to it. I'm glad I have both of you kind of back to back. Interesting to get some insight, but I, I want to learn a little bit more. And we started talking about it, kind of this, the concept of a unmuted life and how that has manifested at what its its way into your life. You know?
0: Yeah. So, you know, growing up, I was a really shy kid. So I was the kind of an overachiever and um, did well in school, you know, follow big rule follower, you know, very intentional. If mm-hmm. if it was supposed to be a certain way, I made sure that I did it that way. And I tried to make sure other people did it that way too. <laughs> um, yeah. And I loved, I loved singing and I loved writing. Uh, I, was, I was very creative, but just to myself, you know, I didn't, didn't really share those things with many people. And then, and growing up, my parents went through a rough patch in their marriage when I was maybe about five or six years old, and I sort of like further internalized the need to, to be the one that had it together, you know, to be the good kid. Um, and so that caused me to kind of silence myself. And I didn't really share when I was struggling or when I was sad or when I was in pain. Um, I sometimes would to my dad. He was kind of my safest person to open up to. But um, generally speaking, you know, I, I wasn't vulnerable with many people. And you know, over the course of of my life, you know, what, what started to happen, really about a, a a decade ago, is I started to kind of feel a shift and experience a shift. And um, you know, it happened with the work that I was doing. I was starting to find work that I was really deeply passionate about in the wellness industry. Um, I started to do a lot of uh, self discovery through taking different assessments and going through different life experiences. And, um, I started to have this uh, kind of this, I guess I started to have a desire to feel more alive and free than I had for much of my life. And my husband and I, I think part of it started with, um, well in, in gospel choir in college, I, I, uh, I'd avoided singing in choirs prior to then. Cause you had to try out for them. And it was very vulnerable to have to sing in front of people. So I just never did it. Um, but then when I got to college, there was this amazing choir that had like 80 people. So I didn't have to try out. And I figured my voice would blend in pretty easily with like 80 other high energy people. So uh, it wasn't until I, I studied abroad in Spain in college and got to experience this incredible aliveness of, of the Spanish culture. And I came back and I just had a new lease on life and I joined the choir. And I, you know, two months after being home, I decided to to go up to to the director, the choir director, once practice had ended. And I and I said to him, I was like, I want to try out for a solo. And I started singing and I let, you know, everything that had been in me for like 20 years <laughs> that I I hadn't, you know, the, the singing we do in the shower that we don't do in front of other people. Mm-hmm. I finally let all of that out. And oh my gosh, it was. It was so liberating to, to do that because it's it's almost like I had silenced my joy. Like I had muted something that brought me a tremendous amount of joy. And I think a lot of us as adults especially, we we do that. Um and it, it was the beginning of of me being unmuted. And um that was 15 years ago, actually. So, so uh it started to change things, and that led me to connect to my husband because he was also into music, and so we would sing together, you know, by ourselves and uh, with a couple other people that I was in choir with, and you know, that was that was the beginning of me really getting unmuted and, and using my voice in the, in the way that made me feel alive. and And so now it's funny that I went from a really shy kid who was almost afraid to use my voice in front of people to somebody to somebody who gets paid to speak for a living. It's kind of ironic. <laughs>
1: That, um, we, I don't think we talked about this. Uh, I know we didn't talk about this when we were talking off air. Um, I feel like we have a very similar Mm -hmm. path in life. Um, I'll explain that, but I want to understand in in your estimation why people Mm -hmm. mute themselves and why, especially as adults, why we feel like we can't let our voice, um, really fly.
0: Yeah, I think you know. Interestingly, there's a there's a professor, I believe, out of Harvard. I think she out of Harvard, named Dana Jack, who coined this term, self silencing. And mm. basically, what she means by that is when we silence our voice, it's typically in intimate relationships. When we when we don't use our voice, and, and often for women, it's you know out of fear of being a burden, out of fear that we're going to be perceived as being too much, of inconveniencing people of appearing, you know, there's a very fine line for women of appearing assertive and, um, a, another a, versus, you know, a five letter word that most women, you know, really don't like to be called. There's a really fine line. And so I think a lot of women choose to, to not speak up for fear of the repercussions if they do for fear of being rejected from the tribe, you know, um, women in particular are very kind of relational, um, in, in, in the way that we connect with people and, and, um, kind of a desire to fit in. And so we silence ourselves. And then I think oftentimes, you know, and this isn't totally exclusive, but just, you know, general trends. And then with men, there's often a concern of appearing, um, of appearing weak, of being judged as soft, if, uh, they open up and share what they're really, what they're really feeling, for instance, or sharing, you know, opening up and being vulnerable. That is not something that, uh, they're really given permission to do. And I think that's unfortunate because everyone has feelings, and everyone should have permission to feel what they feel um, without judgment. And so what happens is we kind of suppress and stifle and mute and silence our thoughts and our feelings and our desires. And it actually leads to a whole slew of health problems. So it leads to can lead to depression, loneliness lead to marital problems, it can lead to um, heart disease, irritable bowel syndrome, uh, eating disorders. And so these are all ways that we're you know, basically suppressing something that we have an innate desire to release.
1: Who are the, or what are the originators of muting people? Is it parental influences, friends? What have you seen? Research observation that have been the most influential aspects of muting a person's behavior.
0: You know, I think a lot of it. Um, I think I think it's a I think it's a blend. So I, I think it can be parental. I I've, I know there's a book um, called Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert that I, I really like and have read. And several years ago on one of her podcasts, she was talking to somebody and sharing a story about how there was a guy who really loved art. Right? He loved to draw. And um, when he was a kid, he had a parent that said something really hurtful and critical about him and made fun of the fact that he was interested in art. And he took like 30 years. He he took a break from art for like 30 years because he was so negatively impacted by the words of his father. A hell of a break. Right. Is that wild? (laughs) Like that's, it can be an incident. It can be one incident where someone says like, you're not a very good singer or or you talk too much, or you know, nobody wants to hear what you have to say. Or so I think it can be. I can. I think it can be a single incident that does it. I think it can be a tendency. So if we grow up in families where uh, we just talk about, keep everything on the surface, and, and and we're not going deep at all, if that's like the norm in our family to not talk about things when we're struggling or when we're sad, um, or when we're curious. Uh, when we're uncertain about things, if we're not allowed to explore those kind of either what we often perceive as more negative or nebulous emotions, I think we just carry that with us into adulthood and assume that those are not safe places to venture into. So we just don't even initiate conversation. And then it shows up in, in like that person's marriage, right? So if you grow up in a family where we don't talk about the the general unspoken rule is we just don't talk about um, things that are hard or things that are uncomfortable, then you never get practice doing that. And so as an adult, let's say you get married um, and you marry somebody who comes from a family that was allowed to talk about things. Now, suddenly you have a communication dilemma because in one situation, it was normalized to be expressive. And in another situation, it was shameful to be expressive. And, you know, without getting into too much detail on that, just to kind of honor relationships, you know, my husband and I came from very different um, places in terms of communication. And when we got together, you know, I had seen my parents go through, you know, after they went through that really difficult season of their marriage, I saw them go through a lot of restorative work. And so to me, it was normal and okay to talk about things that were difficult because I saw them move from a state of like something that was broken to redeeming it. Um, and my husband came from a place where, you know, it was, really hard and maybe not part of the family's DNA, even beyond his parents to really talk about things that were that were kind of um, difficult or triggering. And so we had to do a lot of work to learn. We went through, a, um, I'm sure my dad will mention him, um, Harville Hendricks, we went through a training that my parents had gone through uh, when we were about two years into our marriage, it's called Getting the Love You Want. And we unpacked kind of everything that was contributing, to all of the dysfunction in our communication and got to a point where we learned how to create safety and how to create a space where each person could feel heard and feel validated in their emotions and, um, you know, connected to whatever that childhood wound was, that wound of maybe we felt abandoned, or maybe we felt neglected, or we felt unseen, or we felt unheard, or um, we felt like we, you know, in my family, being the daughter of two entrepreneurs. The mindset that I had ingrained in me, I don't think it was intentional, was like figure it out yourself. <laughs> like you can do it. Just the mindset of independence. So then when I got in situations and relationships where I maybe had to be interdependent, I struggled with that. Um so it's just been an interesting journey, just in my own experience, of seeing, you know, my husband seeing my husband get unmuted as somebody who did not feel comfortable or safe to express uh, vulnerable, like feelings, we've had such an increase in our intimacy and connectedness as a result of doing that work. And it is hard and it is full of tears and it's messy and it's not linear, but it is so healing and restorative.
1: That's wonderful. You know, it makes me think of, I'm not sure if you're familiar, the Todd Marinovich story it's really good. I mean, am really in athletics and, um, and on ESPN, they have these documentaries kind of pieces, biographical pieces, yeah, 30 yeah. for 30s. And, uh, if you get a chance, okay. you got to watch it. It's like one of the better ones I've ever seen. And it's essentially about what you're talking about. And a large kind of highlight is Todd Marinovich, a very successful, like prodigy high school football player, quarterback. And his dad was this big, kind of super hardcore, aggressive coach, father, um, pushing his son to become this, this great athlete. But throughout the time, Todd had a huge passion for art, just loved art, just drawing, sculpting, clay, doing clay, all this stuff. His father denied that passion in him completely. And basically, he ended up disintegrating, washing out of the NFL. I mean, a lot of problems, substance abuse, everything. But what was beautiful is I think his father finally accepted. He un they un- he unmuted his passion for art. And I think to this day, they have an art gallery wow. together. And then the father actually was in the art, but he would never allow himself to let his son know that he loved it, too. <sighs> wow. For it. And it's just the journey of like... A big part of the show was like, what if you're great at something, but it's not what you're supposed Mm -hmm. to do? I was like, wow, mind-blowing. But what he really loved was art and drawing and sculpting and this relationship between father and son. They went through all this strife because he was pushing them to become something he really didn't want to be. He was muting his real joy in life which his father did not see as, I think, being a manly thing or whatever that means in his eyes and all that. It's just really, it's beautiful. I mean, you got to watch it. It's a really beautiful story. It's about a father and a son, essentially. Um, but it's so much about being unmuted you know, after a long period of time. I just thought about it when you said about the guy stopping art for 30 years. <laughs> I was like, it makes me think of that. And my own story, what it's, I said I would share I, I mean, it's just your time. I don't want to take up too much of it. you know, just i uh I was so shy when I was in high school completely, but I always felt I was a chatter like yeah. i I could talk I just didn't know how to get it out of me, and so when I went to college, I took public speaking, took basic counseling, I had a psychiatrist as part of that, and then it started teaching in front of large audiences and things, and so it helped to. Unmute me to where I am today. So I, I identify with kind of like finding that voice and what you're talking yeah,
0: about. Yeah, that's, that's, we actually have been watching some 30 for 30. So I'll, I haven't, I haven't watched that one. So my husband is always game when Amazing. I'm like, Hey, you want to watch a 30 for 30 on ESPN? He's like, obviously. Um.
1: <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's what it was. It's just like mind blowing. And I was like, I remember this guy's story um, growing up, but like I didn't know all the backstory and the art and all that. It was just,
0: Yeah, you know, I think, so back to one of the questions you'd asked, so in that particular situation, right, it might be a parent that does it, but I think there's also Mm -hmm. tendencies we have. So if somebody is wired, so I was wired to be very, again, golden child, follow the rules for very perfectionistic, and more women than men are are wired toward that, toward that people pleasing perfectionism. Um, And that can be something else that holds us back because we judge whatever... Our joy is or our gift or our talent is we judge it as inferior or not good enough in some way to share. So because I'm not as good as so-and-so or because if I share this thing, somebody might make fun of me, dismiss me, reject me. I'm, I don't, I'm not courageous enough to put it out there because I'm not confident enough in my own ability to withstand any type of negative feedback I might get from people that I release this to.
1: That makes sense. No, it definitely makes a lot of sense. And by the way, everyone, uh, Rachel is singing on LinkedIn pretty regularly. So I, how can you miss it? And she's singing on this podcast and a clip before we start the conversation. <laughs> and she's a very good singer, by the
0: Thanks. way. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. I feel like we mute certain things. So we mute our joy, right? I think we also, one of the things I did a lot of is, you know, we, we mute ourselves in relationships we talked about too. Um, and we also mute our pain. So I was very, I was sick frequently as a kid. So I had chronic ear, nose and throat infections from the time I was like four to maybe like 16. And then I had um, chronic respiratory issues like bronchitis and, um, sinus issues. I had maybe a half a dozen surgeries by the time I was a sophomore in high school and my ear, nose and throat. And so I would actually lose my voice, uh, starting probably in high school through college, my, through my twenties, I lost my voice for varying periods of time or would have significant vocal strain. Um, and so I literally was like silenced in that, in, in those situations And in a lot of cases, it was due to the fact that I wasn't listening to my body. So I think a lot of us, especially as adults, we have a symptom, we take something to suppress the symptom because we don't want to be bothered by the pain and the inconvenience and the discomfort. And I I mean, I had acid reflux. I had like a fire figuratively and literally, I had a fire in my belly uh, from the time I was mid teenager, you know, maybe 16, 17. And I took medicine for that reflux medicine for almost a decade. Um, And then as I started speaking, so like 2013, 2014, as I started speaking, as I started opening up, as I started making changes to my diet to take out foods that were unknowingly making me sick for most of my life. um, That as I did that, my symptoms, like kind of that inflammation in my body dissipated and I can't help but think that there's a connection, that it wasn't just that I was making physical changes, but I was also making changes in how I was showing up because I was starting to use my voice to spread messages to more people through writing. I started a blog. I started, you know, doing workshops and trainings. And, um, and then in my career, I'd say like, you know, I it was hard for me to be in those situations where my voice wasn't always reliable. Cause as a speaker, (laughs) if you don't have your voice, you can't do your work. Um, and, and I went through again, all those times muting so much of that pain. And then even, you know, we have symptoms, maybe you have trouble sleeping or you have, you know, I had a, for me, it was three and a half years ago. I had a dream that I was drowning, which is your body's way of trying to send a pretty clear message that you're about to crash. Um, and then I got diagnosed with Epstein-Barr virus, which is an acute form of mono a couple months later. So, you know, I ignored the initial dream. because I was like, all right, I don't have time for this. I have stuff to do. (laughs) Um, and then I just kept pushing and pushing and pushing until my body just like basically gave out. And so I've learned how important it is to honor my body, to listen to my body, to not push past it and to recognize that pain is my body's way of trying to get my attention. And it's not to be ignored. And if I don't pay attention to it when it's whispering at me, I'm going to have no choice but to pay attention to it when it gets really angry and starts yelling at me, which I think is something that most people, most adults in some capacity can relate to.
1: I would say a lot of adults can relate to that. And um, it's interesting what we do. We feel something and we kind of hide it and we just keep it. And we're like, well, let me just see how this goes type of thing instead of being open about it. And I'm, you know, I'm also interested in like, what are your thoughts on people who feel like they're unmuted? They have a, they, they show their voice and they're putting it out there for others to see, but it, it's not necessarily positive. You know, it's just almost reckless (laughs) with their voice. Yeah.
0: I think that's a huge like asterisk with being unmuted because being unmuted could, If if you're being unmuted mutes somebody else, then I would say that's not healthy. So, right, if you say, oh, well, I just want to say, because you you hear people say stuff like this, right? Like, well, I'm just speaking my truth and I'm just being authentic. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if your authentic truth means you just character assassinated somebody else, then that's not okay.
1: (laughs) I think that's so important to point out because – I think people can say, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm flying this flag. I just say whatever I like. I'm my voice. And yeah, I mean, you have, you can say things. I mean, and you have freedom of speech, but not freedom of consequences that occurs. And I think we, we twist that we we're so we're so into like, I can say whatever I want to say my civil liberty. I can say these things and really fly that. I rarely hear people go, "But I'm going to accept the consequences right. of what I say." And you know, I never hear that part of
0: it. <laughs> yeah, cuz they don't want to face the consequences of what they say. They just want to be brash <laughs> about it, right? It's like that's that's not kind. Right. It's like, you know, like I was reading an article recently about psychological safety and one of the comments in the article was that psychological safety is this belief that I can speak up with, you know, questions, concerns, ideas without fear of having my head bitten off by somebody. But the disclaimer there is the same thing. If, if you speaking up makes somebody else feel unsafe, then you have sabotaged the very thing that you're trying to create for yourself. So it's really important to have the self-awareness and the humility to recognize when how you being unmuted mutes somebody else.
1: That's wild, actually, (laughs) in that sense. How do you navigate that or how can people navigate that better? Because I think I follow me for a second. I feel like what we do virtually, especially in our lives today, is the bar is very low to entry into having a voice. Any like I think about like when I was growing up in the 80s. It, you know, in terms of having a, a voice that carried across the planet virtually all over, that, that really wasn't there. So now we have this tremendous power, this tremendous power of potentially people who didn't have much of a voice, or maybe we didn't want them to have mm-hmm. that voice because it was very destructive, can create that destructive voice and have it travel across the planet. How do we? manage understanding that and then putting across a good representation of a voice that doesn't mute other people.
0: But I think a lot of it is around the intention of why you're using your voice. So, so when I think about it, I think about, okay, how is this a contribution in some way to somebody Mm. else? So how, how is me using my voice in whatever way you're using your voice or whatever form of expression, because it might not be your voice, right? It might be artistic or writing or something like that, um, or movement, how is this expression of me a contribution or how can it be a contribution to someone, to something, to an organization, to a group? Because we see it all the time right on social media. People just go out there and rant. And that was for your ego. That wasn't to help anybody. (laughs) Like, so be aware of the intention behind what a share is, because if the share is simply just so that you can get it off your chest and say whatever to your point with no consequence, that's not helpful.
1: Yeah. It, it. Do you ever think like if you had the chance to redo social media, how you would present it <laughs> to people?
0: Like how you'd pitch it to them and say like how it should be used?
1: Yeah. Like I think about this and I think about what you're saying and I, it literally just popped in my head. Like, would you have it be the same? Like, like, share, comment. Would you make it different? Would you... The connotation behind it maybe be different. I don't know. It's just a yeah. Thought.
0: I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like it's it, it can be negative and positive. I mean, I'm most active on LinkedIn. You know, as the primary platform, I feel like that's yeah. the least caustic place to spread ideas.
1: Same here. <laughs>
0: and the most helpful. <laughs> like people are generally more generative, more generous, kinder, help. You know, so true. <laughs> like, but, and I you know they've added a shift to like, you know, there, it's not just like anymore, right? It's like celebrate or love or insightful or, you know, bright idea or something. And I, I think it's helpful for that kind of feedback. I think the trap happens when that feedback defines us and that feedback dictates whether or not we create more, um, Especially if someone is just getting started, because you can look at somebody who has ninety thousand followers and and gets ten thousand views on everything they post, and look at what you're doing and see that you have two likes and like fifty people looked at it, right? <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, why do I bother, right? And before, like, <laughs> before social media happened, people used to create for the sake of creating. So I. I think so much of right. it is like, what's your goal? Is it to create, like when I first started my blog, it was terrible. Like okay, it wasn't terrible. It, I had no logo for <laughs> like the formatting was really not attractive. Um, I didn't have a logo for a year. I took poorly lit pictures and put them all over. I would like randomly bold and underline and, and italicize words. So it was like hard to read. Um, but I didn't really care because I wasn't doing it for everybody else. I was doing it for me. Like I was doing it for, I believe, meaning I wasn't doing it for everybody else. I wasn't doing it for their approval. I was doing it because yeah. I had been told that what I was sharing with people in conversation was something that I should share with more people that was helpful. And so I then started to write articles and blog posts and do videos and stuff. And so my intention was to help people. Um, it it wasn't to track um uh, let's see, did that post get enough views? It's all practice. It's reps, right? So much of it is reps. You just have it to is. keep showing up.
1: It is. Well, you're very good at that. Thanks. I mean, you have uh, quite a bit. Of course, you're always showing up on LinkedIn. And I feel like we're very kindred spirits in this. It's it's my definite place that I uh, put out stuff regularly um, but you, you're very good at showing up on a regular basis and providing good information and being positive. But it makes me swing into this. I mean, it's a dicey thing. It's kind of like I've seen that on some sites. I'm not part of Twitter and stuff like that, but that I, that there are, I read about things like maybe putting information on there that's saying like, hey, this is not a right. factual thing. That people put, you know, like, what are your thoughts about that and, and how that relates to freedom of expression? In terms
0: of people just saying whatever they want without making sure it's evidence-based?
1: Yes, yes.
0: <laughs> I, I think it's a testament to the fact that, generally speaking, as a society, people don't feel seen, heard, known, acknowledged, or valued.
1: Hmm. Yeah, it's... Like... I struggle with this because I think, you know, people are allowed to say things, but it's weird. Like when people like literally say things that have no actual basis for any reason, reasonably like yeah. sane thought, <laughs> like it's like, it's not true. <clears throat> like it's like the, there's factual evidence about it and it's literally not true. And it's like and interest, but then how do you work that into the aspect that, well, you know, we live in a society, there's freedom mm-hmm. of speech And you know, we got to allow people to say things, but like, what if it's like blatantly untrue?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think a couple things come to mind as you're asking that question. So, one is it reminds me of kind of how we define empathetic listening, which is essentially accepting without agreeing. (laughs) So, empathy (laughs) is saying, okay, I may not agree with you, but I can still accept you as a human being. And even though what you're saying, might trigger me in some way, even though what you're saying might upset me in some way. Um, I can, first of all, I can choose to not follow you on social media. First of all, so that would be like correct. You know, when you're in an abusive relationship, get out, right? Like in that, is oversimplifying yeah. it, but you can very easily get out of a virtual relationship by just blocking or unfollowing somebody. So if someone really, really gets you, just stop looking at it. You know. Um, Because you're not going to convince people very generally. I I went to a a training, like a a retreat a couple years ago, and and the the topic was on storytelling. And it was fascinating to understand how difficult it is to change someone's mind when you pit data against data. Like, it very rarely works. Like, almost (laughs) never. Once someone has come to believe something, you're not going to change their mind by giving them a plethora of data to prove otherwise, what generally changes people's minds more if they are going to change is some type of storytelling based on a personal, like, uh, you know, even if it's anecdotal, based on an actual human's experience, that that has a much greater likelihood of, of perhaps shifting someone's experience or asking a question As opposed to just going at them with more data, it's not, and we do it all the time. People do it all the time.
1: You're realizing this is very counterintuitive to what people do, right? I mean, like people throw evidence and data, and at like crazy, like I have these ten research studies that prove my point about this. Yeah,
0: and and that's why like get curious with people. So part of it is again, some people do it just because they want attention. Because again, maybe they don't feel seen in their marriage, or maybe they don't feel seen by their parents, or maybe they don't really feel connected to a community of friends that they can be healthfully expressive with. And so for them, it's like this verbal vomit on online, where it's just (laughs) like, ah, like someone is basically saying, look at me, look at me, look at me, I'm important. Yeah. Like, Care about. I think that's so. It's 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 more. I really truly believe at my core that more often than not, it's like a cry for help or it's a cry for attention. More more than anything, because people who are really healthy don't do stuff like that.
1: Agreed. (laughs)
0: I'm like
1: totally agree. Oh my gosh, Rachel! I can't tell you how many times I've had this discussion. Where. I mean, in LinkedIn, you're right. It's a it's generally a very positive place, and you don't really see the the crazy town behavior that you might see in other things. But every once in a while, you might come across something, and it and for me, it's kind of like so out of bounds. I'm like, why would you do that? Like, like if you're like sane and like you critically think and you think about the consequences of behavior and how this will actually come across, you wouldn't do that. Like most successful people, and that I you know my life. They don't exhibit yeah. that behavior no. ever. So it does seem like it's attention-seeking well, behavior. And, and
0: also, and sometimes people feel, I, I've seen it happen, and some, some people I know, um, even some people in my industry, who get really loud because they felt like when they were being nice, nobody listened to them. Oh, And so they feel like, well, apparently I didn't get your attention when I was just like, like sharing this at a, at a more level-headed way. So now- I'm going to be antagonistic about it because you weren't paying attention before. And I I've seen this happen. And, I, and then I've gotten to meet these people in person and been like, you're such a nice human being. Why are you such a jerk on the internet? Like <laughs> <laughs> I've had this experience of multiple people and I've had situations where I've had people comment on some things a couple of years ago, some of the people who are like the like, the internet trolls. Right. And they commented on something and it was a dig at somebody else commenting on something that I had posted. And I, without hesitation, will send a direct message to, the, to, to whoever these people are. I've had this happen with multiple people and say, Hey, you know, I'm a fan of free speech, um, but I'm not a fan of you attacking somebody on my platform. If you want to do that on your own platform, I don't think it's all that great, but go ahead. But I'm going to, you're going to edit your comment to not be unkind, or I'm going to delete it. I've said that to people.
1: <laughs> what do they oh, say? Oh, they
0: change it. They change it. <laughs> they might fight me a little bit, a bit, but I'm like, all right, well, fine. I control my stuff, so I'm just going to delete it. I'm just letting you know. Like I'm giving you tomorrow or giving you like the next couple of hours. Either you go in there and change it, because I know you live on here anyway, or, or I'm going to delete it, because I have worked really hard to build up a platform that is life-giving And that doesn't mute other people and being a bully mutes other people. So, so that's my rules of engagement. And if you don't want to follow them, by all means, go do your own thing, but don't do it on my stuff.
1: You're very similar to me, man. I knew there was a connection. I, I have spent over a decade on LinkedIn building up my genuine, how I am in person. What you see from me on there is exactly how I am in person. And saying this is a positive, like you said, life-giving, um, very genuine. I care about helping other people. Projection. Again, it's me. If you meet me, you'll know the yeah. LinkedIn me and the real me and the whatever me is somewhere out with friends. You'll you'll be like, Oh, this this is very congruent. This makes sense to me. How do you how do you reconcile though for a person who goes, I'm really nice, but I have to be loud for people to Take me serious.
0: I mean, well, part of it is I try to get to know them a little bit better. So for some of these people, I've gotten to know their backstories and I see a tremendous amount of pain, Um, perhaps pain, suffering, um, just like unexpected trauma that they've had to go through. And I'm like, all right, this is just like a wounded animal, right? It's like, we've heard the phrase, hurt people hurt people, you know? And so, part of it is having some of that compassion, and just to say, I've said this to people. I've, I've had. <laughs> it's funny. I have a friend who, you know, we can both be a little fiery, a little hot, you know, when we're when we're on. And I was talking with her at a conference, and she was putting something together um, for a presentation she was doing, and I knew the tendency to kind of her tendency to want to demonstrate how smart she is all the time. So, like, I'm a PhD. I've got all these credentials. Like. And like using that as like the mask to hide behind to to, to just like, okay, make sure everyone knows how impressive I am, then they'll value what I say. That was sort of her mask. And um, I get that because I've worn that mask a lot too. And so I said to her, I was like, you know, I've learned so much from you. This is someone I'd known for like 10 years, one of my early mentors in this industry. And I said, I really value, we've had such fantastic conversations. I really admire so much of what you've done And so much of what I've learned from you, and I don't know, I know you're maybe aware of it, but when you do this, I think it causes people to see you in this other light. And I just would hate for people to see you in any other light than how I see you when you're at your best. And she's done enough work internally (laughs) and, you know, with like, just like I have, I, you know, I've gone through therapy and worked with coaches and done, done a lot of like, right. It takes, it takes a lot of work to, to get to the place of, of the type of healthy person we're talking about. It doesn't just happen. It takes effort. Um. And she had the humility to hear me. And she said that like that night she like reworked her entire deck <laughs> of what she was going to uh-huh. talk about. And so that she could just be more real with people. And she had the humility then in the course of the session to acknowledge the conversation we had and how, you know, how I challenged her to, sometimes the student becomes the teacher, you know, um, and it was just this beautiful example of what can happen when we have the courage, part of being unmuted is having the courage to have difficult conversations with people that you care about, um, to make them aware of something that they may not be aware of.
1: Yeah, that's uh, no, beautiful. I mean, I think, and the way you presented it was, it wasn't threatening to her status. In a sense, it was very, it was loving, you know, was, it was just a very kind way of saying it. Now, there's different ways to say that that are Mm -hmm. very nasty. (laughs) You know, you know, but and I don't think people sometimes recognize it's just how you say things, how you project how you care about somebody can be totally warped. If you don't really have if you don't really think about how you want this to come across you know i think it's just again it's like saying things without thinking of the consequences i think it's just such a large thing that we do as humans we're very ready to spew man i'm ready i'm ready to Mm -hmm. attack but we're never ready for the consequences we never go you know if i say this i wonder what the backlash Mm -hmm. is going to be not enough of that happens it's more of like i'm just going (laughs) to say this
0: because I don't care. And you know, the funny thing is, those people are to say, I don't, I don't care. care what anybody thinks. I mean, I'm like, BS. Yes, you do. Of
1: course you do. It's like you're a sociopath.
0: <laughs> if you don't care what anyone thinks, you're a sociopath. So that's probably not true, right?
1: Pretty much. Yeah, you're probably not a sociopath. So I'm sure you generally care. You get hurt when people say things about you that aren't nice. But I mean, to say you don't, it's like people say, well, I don't care about other people. I'm like, really? I'm like, I mean, come on, man. I don't, <laughs> you know? Or yeah. my favorite, my favorite is I just have low expectations all the time. And that way, you know, I won't be disappointed. I'm like, mm-hmm. are you serious? <laughs> like, so do you have low expectations for your job performance, for your significant other, for your child? Do you expect them to be, how about when you go out to eat or whatever you do, you expect it to be poor that way, if it's good, it's, yeah. it's better. Like, you know, yeah. what is that?
0: It's, it's not a very, it's, it's not a very freeing way to live. It's a very stifled, it's hard. Right. And again, but some of that might be shaped. So much of this is like the, the nature nurture stuff, right? So much of it is shaped. There are certain tendencies we each have and they're, they're shaped not just by our caregivers, but by our peer groups. I mean, I dealt with a lot of rejection from my peer group. I did not feel like I fit in as a kid in school. Um, I was like, first of all, I was like a non Catholic kid going to a small Catholic school for 12 years. My aunt is a nun and we're not Catholic, so that's kind of weird. But, like, wow. but I was excluded from things just by virtue of not being the same exact faith as everybody else that was there. And so, from the time I was like seven, you know, I was dealing with, I mean, you know, in our brain, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but when we experience social rejection, the part of our brain that lights up when we're in physical pain lights up when we experience social rejection. So
1: it's yeah, it makes, painful. Yeah, it's like course. literally
0: when you feel the pain of rejection, and you're like, "Why am I bothered by this so much?" It's because getting rejected is essentially the tribe saying to you, "You're out." And think about caveman times. If you were out of the tribe, you didn't have anyone that could help provide. You didn't have anyone that could protect you. And so if you don't have provision or protection, you're going to die. And so basically at a very, very uh, kind of fundamental level of the brain, when we get rejected by other people, it's almost like we have this, this like glimpse of, of, of experiencing death, which sounds super morbid and heavy, but it's, it's why rejection is so deeply painful.
1: Yeah. It's been voted off mm-hmm. the Island, right? you know, and that's very difficult <clears throat> to take. So some people they try to form their life in situations where they won't they will they will experience as little rejection Correct. as possible. And
0: and as a result, yeah. as little connection as possible because inherent and in connect to connect at all is a risk, right? To open yourself up to another person, to share what you think or what you feel, um, to reach out to somebody to ask how they're doing, um, to ask someone for the even just for me reaching out to you to have a conversation, you know, like Um, it could have been ignored or there could have been a no, like we, by, by virtue of attempting to connect, we are setting ourselves up for the potential to be rejected, but living a life where you're not connected is, I mean, that is the thing that leads the most to a thriving life, a social connection.
1: So funny. You mentioned that it's, um, that's a big part, I think, of just networking, connecting with people. Is just putting yourself out there, like asking somebody, hey, I'd like to have a phone call with you or I'd like to have you, you know, on a podcast. And part of my my podcast journey is, is really I just ask people or they ask me. And it's almost always a yes, like 99% <laughs> of the time. It really is. And then people go, how do you have so many episodes? I'm like, I don't know, just do it. I ask people. Like, is that simple? I'm like, yeah, you wouldn't be surprised. People love to talk, man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, <laughs> and people love talking about themselves too. And so really not that hard. Like, I think it's just asking. Like I have this, um, episode I'm trying to have come together in the future here. And it's about a woman. You might be interested in this it's about a woman who, um, she's like a crime investigator or journalist. And she wrote a book with four death row inmates. And she goes around and, and they actually, all of them get on the podcast at the same time, or at least on some level, like, and these guys from death row, and they talk on the podcast about these stories they wrote with her and stuff like that. And I'm like, I need these guys on. I have to learn about this, but is it going to happen if I do nothing?
0: Of course not.
1: I have to put myself out there and see if they're interested, you know?
0: Yeah. You know, along those lines, one of the things that again, my, my dad, Michael Bryant wisdom, He'll say, you know, from the time I was young, instilled in me like, honey, the worst they'll say is no. Like, then you'll be no worse off than you were before you asked. But like the worst, I mean, I I think about growing up, it's funny, I would, sometimes we have this identity of ourselves that we craft, that we we come to believe this certain thing about who we are, about our identity. And then if we look back, we can actually find evidence like against it. Um, so when I say I was always shy or I was timid when I was in a freshman, and I was a freshman in high school. I went to a, like an all girls Catholic high school that was, you know, very high focus on excellence and academia and all of that, which was right up my alley anyway. But our summer reading program was like insane. I mean, you had to read something like two to 3000 pages of like these six different books over the summer as like a, Ooh. you know, 15 year old, um, Like one book was about the like history of the land formation and colonization of like the state of Colorado. And I was like, this is a thousand pages long and I don't, I'm 15 years old. Like, do you really think that I'm going to get a lot from this? And then that I'm going to come back when school starts and take a bunch of tests and tell you everything I learned. Like, no, everyone uses the cliff notes. They, They read as much as they want to. And then they study the cliff notes so that they can like not fail the test. (laughs) <laughs> and I was like, people would complain about it every year. They'd be, they'd complain, you know, ah, oh, this is like this, this program. So after my freshman year, people were just like so bogged down by it. And then I was like, well, has anybody done anything about it? And there's this, there's this, you know, kind of perception that nothing could be done. I think so often in, in the world, people just they don't do anything because they don't think it's possible for anything for a certain, a certain thing to change. And I just didn't accept that as an answer. And so I, fifteen years old. I put together a proposal for the uh, to to meet with the heads of the English and history departments to present to them a way that I thought the summer reading program could be modified so that it would not force people to hate reading, which I'm pretty sure is not the intended goal of the summer <laughs> reading program, um, and to make it so that the tests like were easier to respond to without having to spend the last two weeks of summer memorizing Cliff Note summaries. And so I met by myself with the heads of those two departments, and I presented my idea as though I had any power. Um, and they modified the program. They like, took out some of the books. They changed. They, they gave people some like study guides over the summer. Um, they, they modified the type of uh, assessments that they did when we came back. And, and that was one of the first uh, experiences that I had of using my voice, of being an advocate, essentially. And, you know, part of the word advocacy, like VOC is like voice, part of the word advocate is to use your voice. And um I had a very early on experience in my life of seeing that I could I could make change happen. And that helped me to build some of my confidence. Um and, you know, I ended up running for class president senior year. I didn't I didn't win. I demanded a recount. No, I I didn't win.
1: <laughs> Who do you think you are? I didn't
0: win. I was actually kind of bitter about it because it apparently wasn't a very, a very close vote. Not that I'm still bitter at 35, but whatever.
1: <laughs> it, it doesn't sound like that at all. You know.
0: But, you know, I decided I didn't win the election, but I was like, all right, well, what else can I do to have an impact? You know, people are getting into colleges and they have these different cool things they're doing and they, they're they having like birthdays that we could celebrate. And we have all these events happening as seniors. And so I created a newsletter called Senioritis. <laughs> And then I just, you know, worked at the library and I would print it there and I would distribute it to all my classmates. And it was like a way that I could still, you know, influence and lead and elevate other people and, um, you know, just do something fun to leave my mark a little bit. Um, So I think part of it is to your point, we just have to be willing to to try and to recognize that it might not work, but it's the consistency of showing up. It's the... um, It's the consist of just keep showing up, especially when you think no one's noticing like us. Right. So
1: true. Oh my gosh. You are speaking my language. We have like this thing going (laughs) right now, Rachel, like there's a thing happening, you know, and we're very parallel on this. Like I I don't want to compliment again, compliment you again. You show up all the time on LinkedIn and it's always very well done. And very meaningful, of course, and it makes a lot of sense. You know, sometimes when people show up a lot, like, honestly, it kind of annoys me. Like if it if it's like not, you know, if it's and it feels like you know self indulgent and always like, but you always come from a good place, and I always appreciate that. You know, and I feel very similar. Like with my podcast, is you know, somebody somebody ask, man, you have you're up to like 131 episodes. Like, how do you do that? I'm like, I don't know, I just do it. I don't like, I just do it. I just book them. I do them, put them out, book them, do them. It's yeah. not magic. <laughs> I'm like, you know, I don't know what to tell you. It's just doing it. And my brother and I, my brother's a very successful full-time hip-hop artist. And he's just like, all I did in life was just kept doing stuff. I just kept doing it. I did the dirty work. I just kept do- showing up literally regularly. And it's that it's that weirdness of when you think you're doing stuff, and you're like, man, nobody's listening to this. I don't know if anybody's listening to this. And that's when you got to really yep. push through. Yep. You
0: know? Yeah, my, my friend, uh, Kate Ladon. I was talking to her. She's an expert in like LinkedIn branding and, and personal branding and marketing. And she we were on a call one time and she had this zinger that I was like, oh my gosh, that's such gold. And I put it in a video. It was probably one of the most watched videos I put on LinkedIn. And the phrase is totally connected to what we're saying. It was um, sloppy success is better than perfect inaction.
1: Oh my gosh. Sloppy success is better than perfect inaction. Wow. Wow. Just showing up regularly, right? And doing nothing.
0: And recognizing that like when I I look back at the first videos I ever did on any social media platform and I'm like, oh dear, like, you know, (laughs) I I was so like demure. I, I didn't seem confident and sure of myself. I, I, which to me was a reflection that I wasn't comfortable with myself. Um, and now I'm just like, to your point. I am who I am. Like what you see in a training, what you hear in a podcast, what you see in a LinkedIn video is the same kind of experience you're going to get if we sit down at a coffee shop and have a conversation. Like it's the same thing because it's too exhausting to try to be five different people at one time.
1: (laughs) What happens all the time though with people is there are different things I saw on a comedy special with Jim Gaffigan a while ago, and he was saying that he's like, you know, if you ever have like, different sets of friends and like, they each know different things about you. And you're like, well, these people don't know this about me. So don't mention that. And these people, they see me like this. And it's, it's so <laughs> <Yeah>. true. <laughs>
0: oh, I did that. I definitely had different pockets of friends, I, even though I struggled to have friends in general, like the friends that I had, I was like, okay, this is my school group. And this is my church group. And this is my neighborhood group. And like, if these people ever hang out, I'm going to be in a panic. Like. <laughs> <laughs> you know so it's, it's just right. it, it's so interesting and so I, I think so much of this is is part of the self awareness piece is is one is letting people speak truth to you so being someone who's receptive which requires a significant degree of humility and is not something that i really started experiencing until about 3 years ago um because i just had like fort Knox around me where i was like you will not judge me you will <laughs> you will not question me or will bite your head off. You know, like it, I didn't have to say it, but people kind of felt it, I'm sure. So, um, but now it's like people can have candid conversations and say, hey, how are you? I see that you're doing this like out there online, like how are you really doing? You know what I mean? And then I can like, I can be honest, you know, or if I'm doing a, you know, after I had this car accident a couple of weeks ago, I, I was still kept up doing videos on LinkedIn because I felt like it was important to show that just because somebody shows up with like, You know, positivity and encouragement most of the time does not mean that, like, we live with our head in the sand or that we're in denial of difficult emotions. And so I thought it was important also to share when, like, you know, when you are struggling or when you're having a difficult day or to acknowledge that it's okay to be sad or it's okay to be angry or it's especially, you know, with what's going on with the coronavirus, that it's okay to grieve. Like, we need to have space. to honor that and not just be like super tough and push through it and show how strong we are. Like that's not strong to deny <laughs> your own feelings.
1: Totally agree. I mean, it's, it's very interesting. And I remember one time I, I put up a post and I was like, you know, I'm, I, I'm very positive with things, but I was like, it's really hard to be positive. I'm like, it's like, it's a lot of weird stuff going on. And sometimes I just don't want to be positive, man. I really don't, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to push through, but man, it's, t- it's hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I'm like, it's not just waking up feeling great and going, oh man, you know what? You need to be positive and stuff. It's like, yeah, sometimes I get up. I'm like, I really don't right. want to do this, man. I really don't want to like be chipper and happy and you know, uh, right. whatever it's, it's just part of it. Yeah. Sometimes.
0: And I acknowledge it. It's like, hi, hi, I'm human. All that does is humanize us, right? Like makes people, you know, feel like they can relate and connect more.
1: Yeah, totally. I and um I just love that concept of <clears throat> the presentation of muting or unmuted life. And, you know, it feels like just being yourself, um, presenting yourself in, in the way that it feels native to you, but is also, like you said, not muting other people in the process. And I think if you can Aspire to that and then have execution and action of that, you'll be much happier.
0: Yeah. And feel more alive, right? Like for me, I think like there's a a quote, I'm going to botch it a little bit, but by Howard Thurman, it's like, you know, the world, um, like what the world needs is like people who have come alive. I cut off the first part of the quote, but, (laughs) um, you know, (laughs) that's what the world needs is people who are, who are, who are like, like joyfully alive, you know, because, we, it's like we get one shot here, you know what I mean? And, and if we don't connect to that, if we and, and all of us as humans, we have this creative potential inside of us, I believe, um, that we're naturally like creative beings, whether it's through art or music or science or, um, or, or movement, or, you know, any form of expression that all of us have something in us that the world needs us to let out to release and that that's our contribution, you know, in, in some way is, is to be someone who is expressing the gift and the experiences and the perspective that's inside of us in order to make the world a better, better place, to lift other people up, to give other people permission to do what they might have resisted or been afraid to do. I think that, I think that everyone has the capacity to, to offer that in, into the world.
1: Well said, and a, a great point to end on. I think for that really well said, you know, I've been looking forward to this because one we had such a a really nice and pleasant discussion off air that I really enjoyed um and um, so Rachel, thank you so much. I look forward to continuing to check out um your regular posts on LinkedIn. I hope everyone else does that as well. Rachel's a wonderful person. we need more wonderful people putting out wonderful things, really meaning it yes. and uh Thank you for doing that and your regular work and helping to unmute yeah, well, people.
0: Thank you as well. And this, I mean, a podcast, for instance, what you're doing, you're giving people the opportunity to express and share their stories and experience. So I view this as, this is like a perfect example of what it is to, to give other people permission to get unmuted. So thank you for who you are and for what you're doing too.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate it. We will yeah. be in touch. <laughs> All right.